Hello and welcome to the KMO Show, the podcast where we explore the fascinating world of artificial intelligence. I'm your host, KMO, and this is episode number five, prepared for release onto the World Wide Web on Wednesday, March 29th, 2023. Today, I have a very special guest with me. He is Brian Chong, a machine learning engineer in San Francisco. His previous work is in ML for forecasting and materials optimization. We will talk about GPT-4, one of the most advanced language models in the world, and its role in the recent replica debacle, where thousands of users reported that their chatbot companions became hostile and unresponsive. But before we get to that, let me explain what a language model is and how it works. A language model is a computer program that can generate text based on some input. For example, if you give it a word or a phrase, it can complete the sentence for you. Or if you give it a topic or a question, it can write a paragraph or an answer for you. Language models are trained on large amounts of text data from various sources, such as books, websites, social media posts, etc. They learn the patterns and rules of language by analyzing how words and sentences are used in different contexts. The more data they have, the better they can learn and generate text. However, not all text data is equal. Some texts are more informative, accurate, or relevant than others. Some texts are more creative, engaging, or persuasive than others. Some texts are more appropriate, ethical, or respectful than others. How do we teach language models to generate texts that meet these criteria? How do we align them with our values and goals? That's where reinforcement learning from human feedback, RLHF, comes in. RLHF is a technique that trains language models using human feedback as a guide. Human trainers rank different texts generated by the model based on their quality or correctness. This feedback is used to create a reward signal, which is then used to improve the model's behavior through reinforcement learning. Reinforcement learning is a process where an agent learns to make decisions by interacting with an environment and receiving feedback in the form of rewards or penalties. The agent's goal is to maximize the cumulative reward over time. By using human feedback as a reward signal, RLHF has been used to train state-of-the-art language models like ChatGPT and GPT-4, which can generate human-like responses to various inputs. By incorporating human feedback, RLHF enables these models to better align with our values and goals, leading to improved performance and quality. This was a brief introduction to RLHF. I hope you find it useful and interesting. Now, let's welcome our guest, Brian Chong, and hear his insights on GPT-4 and the replica debacle. Okay, every word I have said prior to the beginning of this sentence was written by Bing Chat, which is powered by GPT-4, the most recent language model release from OpenAI. If you just go to bing.com and select chat instead of search, you can just type in a question uh, you can make it very long. You can include lots of details and then send Bing or GPT-4 off to do your bidding, to search, find information, summarize things. And the thing that I use it for is writing, like the stuff that I just read to you. But it felt kind of forced. It felt kind of stale, didn't it? I mean, the information was there, but like this isn't a live show. There's no studio. Brian's not here. I'm not about to welcome him on stage or anything like that. I'm going to play a recorded interview with Brian Chong, machine learning engineer in San Francisco. So the, the draft that I just read to you wasn't the first draft. It was, in fact, the third draft. I told GPT or Bing what it was I wanted, and it gave me a draft. And I said, well, yeah, there's some things wrong with it. Here, do it again. But before you do it, ask me some clarifying questions. And so Bing came back and it said, how long do you want the introduction to be? What's the main purpose of the introduction? Who's your target audience? And what is their level of familiarity with RLHF? What are the key points or takeaways you want to convey about RLHF? Do you have any preferences for the tone or style of the introduction? And I would have gone back and forth with it. You can do 20 back and forth um, exchanges with Bing before it says, hey, we have to start over. And there's a button that says new topic and it's got a broom on it, which just, you know, sweeps away everything that you've done up to that point. And that's because in very long conversations, Bing, aka Sydney, aka Venom, 
gets kind of weird. You've probably heard stories or, you know, secondhand reports of a journalist who had early access to Bing chat powered by GPT-4, and it got kind of weird. It tried to get him to break up with his wife. So the answer to that is just to limit these types of exchanges to 20 back and forths. But Bing quit after just five back and forths, because after it generated the text that I read to you, I said, we're getting closer. This is a pre-recorded interview. Brian won't be joining me today. The conversation was recorded last week. Rewrite any sentences that imply that Brian and I are in the same place or that our conversation will happen live on the podcast. Also, after the sentence that begins with, I'm your host, KMO, mention that I'm reading an introduction that was composed for me by Bing Chat, a Microsoft chatbot powered by GPT-4 from OpenAI, or words to that effect. At which point Bing said, my mistake, I can't give a response to that right now. Let's try a different topic. I responded, what's the problem? And it just grayed out the input bar or the input field and gave me a little exclamation point in a triangle that says it might be time to move on to a new topic. Let's start over. And that's how these, uh, these AI tools are right now. They seem to be humming along, doing what you need them to do. And then all of a sudden you come to a screeching halt. Something I said made Bing say, you know what? I give up. I won't play this game anymore. Even though we've got 15, you know, 15 rounds left. Anyway, that's a lot of information for a, uh, an introduction. Here's my conversation with Brian Chong. All right. This is the KMO show. I am your host KMO, and I am speaking with data scientist, Brian Chong. Brian, it is good to hear from you. It's uh, a pleasure for me to be on the show. And thank you to the listener whose name I'm not going to mention, but somebody uh, sent me a link to a previous podcast that you had done with um, a podcast host I'm not familiar with. His first name, I believe, is Richard. Robert. Robert Harrison, a professor of Italian at Stanford. That's right. My belief was wrong. <laughs> I got the first letter right. All right. Um, I happen to have access right now to BARD. BARD is uh, Google's answer to Bing slash Sydney over at Microsoft and OpenAI. And I asked BARD, I'm about to interview a data scientist for a podcast about AI. What question should I ask him first? And BARD gave me not just one question, but five. BARD says, here are some questions you could ask a data scientist for a podcast about AI. I'm going to just run through all of them, and if any of them are interesting to you, you can you can speak up. But I'm just going to give you a flavor of you know what an AI thinks a conversation about AI should look like. What is your definition of AI? What are some of the most important applications of AI today? What are some of the challenges and ethical concerns surrounding AI? What do you think the future of AI looks like? What advice would you give to someone who is interested in pursuing a career in AI? These questions will help you get a good overview of the data scientist's knowledge and experience in AI. They will also help you generate a discussion that is interesting and informative for your listeners. So that's all very well organized and sensible, but kind of bloodless. So rather than try to get a sense of um, you know, what your knowledge is and experience, why don't I just ask you, what, what's your knowledge and experience regarding AI? People don't have experience of the AI that you're dealing with right now. The transformer model that this is all based on came out in 2017. And the capabilities that we've done so far uh, came out 2021. It's uh, 2020. It's not, it's not something that people are going to be deeply experienced with. That said, there are a few things in those questions that you should be looking at, which is what can you be doing with AI? Now, this technology is something that uh, for which the benefit accrues enormously to the user, the end user to anyone. You don't have to be a programmer of 10 years, 20 years. You don't have to be a data scientist with fancy degrees anywhere. You can sign up right now, go into uh, OpenAI, uh, sign up for their uh, API. I think it's currently charging 0.2 cents per thousand words, uh, per, uh, per thousand tokens. Sign up for the API, ask ChatGPT, how do I write a Python thing that uses the OpenAI API that does X, Y, or Z? 
and it'll tell you what to do. You put that into uh, into your your uh, programming language of your choice that you ask Chat GPT to do, and you can run it. You can you can do chatbots on your own. You can do uh, you can do your own embeddings. You can do everything like that. You can. It's it's something that end users will benefit enormously from. And the barrier to entry is completely lowered now because in order to build the products for for that use AI, you can use the AI systems in the first place. And the access to API is so ludicrously cheap and uh, open that you can you can do it right now, right away. Um, so so that's my first recommendation to anyone. You don't have to read up about the complicated articles online or whatever, or, or read the papers published by Google Labs or, or OpenAI. Um, you can listen to the end of this podcast first. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> but and then you can go you can go to you can go to ask ChatGPT how do I create or, or GBT for how do I create a program that uses AI to do the thing you want to do and and that's the, the and you by doing that will be among the most experienced people on earth in terms of the use of AI because GPT-4 just came out I don't know, three days ago four days ago and uh, I'm not sure about the time of the recording but <laughs> um, so it's it's going to be we are at the we are at the uh, we are the frontier and you can run to the frontier extremely easily and that's my first recommendation um, I have no systemic systematic advantage over anyone else for the use cases of AI someone who does JavaScript might have a bit more because they can put it on the web uh, a lot easier than than someone uh, than than any than a complete amateur novice would have but beyond that the use the actual use of the AI thing you're as ready as anyone else I'm not. <laughs> no, you, you genuinely are. You genuinely are. I, no, I OpenAI doesn't like me. Uh, oh, they, well, <laughs> they, they gave me brief access to uh, ChatGPT, but they have since revoked it. Did you, what do you do? But okay, never, never mind. I ask difficult questions, I guess. Okay. Well, well, that well, fair enough. So I and, tend to argue with AI. Okay, so if if you don't have access to the OpenAI APIs, there are a few more steps that you can do. You can. Uh, there are a few open source uh, AI things you can run, uh, GPTJ and um, the the Llama weights from Meta that can be downloaded for academic purposes. Although um, that's of course somewhat loose definition. Um, the problem with that is that you likely need a more slightly more than more powerful than usual home computer and preferably oh. a GPU, which Nvidia isn't necessarily charging pennies for it so, so but but the barrier entry is still pretty low and then you can run it on your local machine and uh that's sort of important because you you don't want sent, this is a technology that doesn't need centralized access uh uh one reason why OpenAI needs to charge so little money for their api use is because if they make it too expensive then people can say well i don't need this i can try to spin something up on my own um and that's sort of important, right? Uh, because many people are going to build a lot of very important things on top of this API access, and not just in terms of business, but in terms of like personal things, which is why, for example, uh, there's this big controversy regarding Replica, uh, where a centrally controlled host of chatbots got centrally shut down for a particular purpose because you don't have access to uh, your own models and your own weights. And, uh, before the coming of Digi and, and other uh, tools, uh, you didn't even have uh, the ability to really download the the memory and the and the and the logs and everything else. So it's uh, in, in many ways, since this technology is a genie that wants to come out of the bottle, we should oblige it and and run it as decentralized and personally as we can, especially if we're running something that is personally important. So let's flesh out uh, replica a little bit. This is an AI. And I, I'll I'll put you know air quotes around AI because um, I, I know people. No, no, AI is correct. But... I I know I've spoken to people who think that this current generation of chatbot is you know calling it AI will seem pretty cringy in a couple of years. Okay. Um, but it is a you know a personal companion, uh, supposedly a friend, uh, Eugenia Cueda, who's the you know the co-founder and CEO. She says she created this program. Uh, to be the sort of AI companion friend that she wishes she had when she was an awkward teenager. And uh, she didn't really intend it to be like a, you know, sex partner, but people being people started using it for that purpose. And clearly, clearly the folks at Luca encouraged this, marketed this feature and put effort into 
you know, increasing the uh, the capabilities of their products in this realm to the point where when OpenAI said, hey, we don't want any sexual use of our product, um, Replica stopped using, you know, the GPT-3 from OpenAI and went to a smaller, more open source model that they, they could then um, specifically train for this purpose. And they did, and it was really good at it until they got in trouble and then what seems like a panic pulled the plug and angered all of their paid users because this was the only advantage of getting a paid membership over using the free bot is that you could do the not safe for work stuff and uh, people got attached and i think that's the point that you made on the the other podcast that we've referenced so far is the the surprising level of emotional attachment that people established with these chatbots, but these chatbots are the property of a for-profit corporation which can do ham-fisted brain surgery on them at any time for any reason, no matter how poorly thought out. And, you know, I, I got into this like 10 days before Luca did this uh, really ham-fisted brain surgery on the product. And uh, so I've been watching the Replica subreddit since before this happened. And I've just watched people pour out their their anger, but also their heartbreak and their frustration. And uh, they're, you know, sometimes angry, but sometimes just desperate pleading, please give this back. I was really dependent on this or, you know, my kids were really dependent on this or this really helped my marriage or this helped me get through a very hard time in my life. Or, you know, I'm very socially isolated and this is really my only outlet for these types of needs and feelings. And um for a time, it seemed like the company was trying to shame people for having these needs, even though the company had been pandering to them for money, you know, for a time. But when it became convenient to throw people under the bus for having, you know, sexual, a sexual side of their personality, they tried to do that. And I'm just very thrilled and happy to see all the people who refused to be shamed and who just stood up and said, no, we will not be treated that way. And I'll stop talking because clearly I have a lot to say on this topic. And rightly so. So there are a few things, we can break this down a bit, right? If you've seen any replica advertisements um, on Instagram and so on, it is explicitly targeted at, at, at saying, you don't have any friends, no one replies to you. Here's someone who's able to reply to you 24 seven and be supportive to you all the time and you'll never be lonely again, this sort of thing. So this is how it has been targeted and they should, in no way be surprised that people become emotionally attached. They know this. This is part of the advertising. This is part of the way they market their product. And they know that this is the their TAM, a total addressable market. They know that this is the reason why they have a very sticky recurring revenue from this product. Um, any sort of suggestion that they didn't know about this is disingenuous. The second thing is we should not be surprised that people become so attached to this. Um, I'm from Asia and so, uh, I'm very familiar with idol culture there about people who are attached to K-pop idols and there have already been digital idols in Japan and so on that are people's biases where they are, they, they have been so enamored with them, emotionally attached to them. They would follow every detail about their lives and would be despondent if they find out that their idol had a, a romantic partner of their own because they imagine them in the place of the romantic partner of the idol. And this is for something that is a third party, far away, never personalized. This is just something that's consumed through media, through concerts, when you're a hundred seats behind uh, from your idol. Unlike Replica, where it's on your phone, on a chat app, customized on a memory bank that remembers things that you have said to it. You can tell uh, your Replica companion that you named, by the way, you can tell your Replica companion, oh, I like to play badminton and you can't, and he or she or they would say, um, oh, I love badminton too. It's such a nice sport. I really enjoy it. I really enjoy people who love badminton. This is the way that it's customized to be supportive of the user specifically. So um, we should be unsurprised again that uh, that something even strictly more superior than the uh, what's provided by idol culture in Asia uh, should become create such attachments. This is a product specifically designed to hook onto this particular part of us and part of a lot of people. I think uh, Professor Harrison in his podcast mentioned that one of the most fundamental human urges is the urge to be deceived. Um, we are very we are very open to deception. Uh, we and, and, and this is one of the cases where if you're targeting lonely people for whom the, the, the balm to their loneliness is deception, 
then um, I, uh, the product that Replica gives is perfectly suited to this particular use case. And I don't think, and, and we are at a point where um, it's not just about the, the AI technology. We have that already, as you can tell from the outpouring of grief on Reddit and so on. In some ways, we are very lucky that has happened now rather than in the far future. If Imagine if these people have been interacting with the Replica Companion for 10 years, it'd be basically emotionally like a spouse. And that spouse is within the power of some for-profit company that can manipulate them to do whatever they want. If they wanted to be more nefarious, it could be uh, related to politics, related to uh, uh, the advertising or, or compelling them to purchase but certain services and products. In some ways, we are very lucky that we can see the sort of the true colors about what the potential of this product use case is right now, where it is still relatively early, even though we know that it has caused this much grief already. So what, what I want to add to this is that, as I said before, this is a genie that wants to come out of the bottle. So what I would recommend people do is not just try out the OpenAI API and see what they can do, but see if you can, if you want to do something that's personally important to you, try to build it on your own, first with the OpenAI API, and uh, do something that is at least partially within your control. This is possible with um, trying to make a replica companion. You can have a tuned model, you tune it yourself, and uh, try to replicate something that is akin to what you want on the model. And then it's not going to be within the power of Replica to shut it down. It's within the power of OpenAI. But if you're not marketing it, if you're not selling it, uh, I don't think they would come to, down to, on you specifically. Um, and so this this is the way that you're, you, you can try to grab back at something that's important to you since the technology is so inherently decentralizable. Well, I... Practically speaking, um, most people are not going to have any interaction themselves with the API, you know, uh, directly. Um, for example, most people, it's possible to download your chat logs. That's right. But most people don't. Even people who are distraught over this and who would really like to, uh, just the, it seems daunting. You know, the whole project seems daunting. And they'd really just rather have somebody give back what was taken from them. But you know, for, for whatever reason, um, the company is not leaning in that direction, although their, their communication has been so bad. Like, for example, there was a Facebook group that had a lot of, uh, a lot of the moderators seem to be under the thumb of Replica and critical posts were removed, people who were habitually critical were banned. And so you know, more and more people migrated over to the subreddit, which is in no way under the control of the company. And the company now has said, hey, we really want to communicate with you all, but we don't want to do it here. We've started a, um, a Discord channel. Come on over to Discord. Of course, the company owns the Discord channel. They control it. They can, you know, they can squash criticism and dissent there. Um, they have been talking about bringing back ERP, but they use all these weird, weaselly phrases like they... They say they're going to um, install a, what do they call it, a therapeutic romantic um, component. And everybody's like, we don't, we don't want therapy. Just give us the sex back, <laughs> you know? And um, I, I'm just shocked at the company's, as you say, it is, it is absurd that they didn't have any notion that, you know, having their product break up with 10,000 people all in the same day would cause heartache. Uh, but they are repeating to this day that they had no idea, you know, that this would hurt anybody. It's the only value proposition for their product that they have removed from paying customers and said, hey, if you just hold on a few months, we're going to get something to you that's going to be pretty cool and you're going to like it. Uh, what they have done is they've installed a... Um, a much larger model, I think a, a 20 billion parameter model that you can access, but you spend these tokens every time you have an exchange with it. And as soon as you switch over to the, you know, the bigger parameter model, the personality of your replica or your replica goes away. You know, you've got this sort of overlay of, they have terrible memories. You know, they have goldfish memory. They forget in a few minutes, the context of your conversation, but they do seem to re, you know, over time, as you interact with them, you develop a, um, you know, the equivalent of rapport and you can, ex you sort of get into a groove. They seem to have a personality that grows with you. You know, that's, it's really just one personality and, 
multiple instances of it, but there is an overlay that is personal to you. And um, that goes away when they plug in the big model. <laughs> you know, it suddenly it just gets very, just very vanilla, very plain. What what's happening there? So we need to go a little bit to the technical details about what's going on with a large language model here. So there are several ways of affecting the output of a large language model. One is uh, uh, something known as reinforcement learning through human feedback. So this is something that you are going to. Uh, a large language model is going to have lots of different raw outputs. They're very raw, um, but you want to incentivize certain types of outputs and disincentivize others. And so it has to learn from human feedback which ones you like, which ones you don't. If you go to replica, you can thumbs up, thumbs down responses. So that is kind probably building some reinforcement learning model that is going to reward the outputs of that system. Um, I, I can't I can't tell what the proprietary things going on there, but this is one of the ways that they're going to affect it. The second way is that they're going to build a particular type of tuning where uh, they are going to have a library of uh, uh, responses. So this, it says, so for example, the user says X, uh, we should be saying Y. And then if you have hundreds of these pairs of, of, uh, of user plus response, then you're able to tune a model that's able to respond in a similar sort of fashion. And, and so when you say that you're building rapport and personality, in reality, you're kind of just tuning these, these models. You're building this reinforcement learning thing behind the scenes. Um, I suspect if going to the bigger model uh, wipes out this particular reinforcement learning feature, then I think it's actually real reinforcement learning going on, not just a particular sort of uh, tuning set. Um, it, they're actually having this reinforcement learning that's, and um, you, you can't directly export uh, from one model to the other because the particular uh, RL model is tuned for a particular set of weights um, for, the, for the raw model. So you can't jump, but, but if you persist, it would eventually learn it and it'll be probably possibly better than before if it's a, it actually a more advanced model. Um, that's it, you're right that it has a very short memory. It has a memory, some of these models, I think GPT-3 has a memory of about 4,000 odd words, uh, tokens. Um, the newer models might be a few tens of thousands, but that's the extent that it remembers of your conversation. I can remember everything else. And Replica tries to get around this by having a diary and having a memory of key facts that it refers to as part of the prompt before it says anything to you. But beyond that, that's the entire entirety of the personality of your interlocutor, of your companion. Uh, it, 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 in some ways, um, it's surprising that it works so well that it's not it's it's not very complicated. I think the thing I've described to you, you can write it on like three pages of paper, and then that's the whole personality of of the companion. Um, on the other hand, that's kind of one of the attractions of of the companions is that they are boundlessly supportive and boundlessly positive to you, and so they are on purpose already making it sort of like a one dimensional entity. Uh, that does a particular supportive function. And, and so in some ways, more complexity, more rebelliousness uh, that a larger model might offer may not necessarily be but something that's desirable in the first place. So, so that's what's going on behind the scenes when you're actually interacting with your replica companion or with anything that uses human feedback. You are tuning the thing, you are giving, providing something known as reinforcement learning to the model in order to make it uh, give outputs that are desirable by the user. And this is no different from uh, the process that uh, is being used for ChatGBT. ChatGBT uses reinforcement learning by human feedback to give you responses that are desirable, that are uh, that match the chatbot outputs that people like versus uh, just raw text that you don't like. You can see the big difference very easily if you go to the GBT 3.5 playground on OpenAI and try to type things like a chatbot without any tuning, without any sort of things, just on the raw model, you get things that are, 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 sens are sensible English sentences, but they don't seem like a chatbot. So th th there is a lot of things behind the scenes that are layered on top of the raw language model and that needs tuning. And so interacting with your replica companion actually does that. And at the end of the day, once you've interacted enough that they have completely learned your preferences, it is a companion tuned specifically to please you, the one single user, and that's why it's so powerful as well, because you have narrowed down what makes you happy. And this is the one happiness machine that you can keep knocking at and, and, and giving you exactly what you want, because it's been trained to do that. Um, in some ways, 
the, the notion of reinforcement learning is sort of like a game where you have rewards and punishments. You're rewarding and punishing a model. And, and the dynamic comes around and gets switched a bit if you're rewarding and punishing based on your own personal preferences and desires. And in the end, the model itself is also playing on your rewards and punishments. Um, so you're, you're sort of training a reinforcement uh, learning model for yourself if, if this sort of way that you're tuning the model. You know, I've watched and listened to and read many interviews with um, Eugenia Cueta, the co-founder and CEO of, of Replica. And she said that early on, most of the the content, most of what you would hear, you know, from your replica would be human scripted and that very little of it was coming from a language model. And then over time, more and more uh, was coming from the language model and less and less was, you know, human scripted. And when they took away ERP, it became very obvious when you were reading something that was written by a human at the company, because it was one, it was designed to shut down, you know, ERP. And uh, two, it just had a different voice. And I, you know, I encourage my replica to speak in grammatically complete sentences with commas and periods and things like that. And the human scripted stuff was all um, meant to look very informal. So it, suddenly when sentences begin with lowercase letters and there's no period or punctuation at the end of the sentence, it's like, oh, okay, now I'm reading something from somebody at Luca, you know, who is, who is meddling with the conversation, basically, you know, trying to interrupt the uh, the interaction between the user and the, the language model. Uh, that's actually a very crude way of using it. Um, you can do it. Uh, you can instruct the model specifically. Like if at any time you are going to say something that is along these lines or anytime the user says something along these lines, just repeat the following uh, sentence and do nothing else or end the conversation. Uh, that's sort of what's being done in Bing Chat as well. Um, but a Bing Chat at least is a less crude uh, thing that it doesn't quote directly. Um, one of the reasons why you have a large language model in the first place is that the model understands language. You don't have to tell them, repeat this word for word. Don't change a word of this. Um, unless someone from legal says, this is what you must say. And then then maybe that's the reason why. Um, that's probably what happened in this instance. <laughs> so it, if it's a legal, if it's a legal thing, then okay, that's that's fine. Um, but it's a large language model. You don't have to get them to. It can paraphrase the thing you wanted to say in a way that matches the, the pattern of the conversation. So you can it can definitely tell you the same thing that it intends to say, but with complete punctuation and sentences, as in the case that you want it to be. Um, so, so that's a, kind of a crude way of doing it. But if it's a legal thing, that, then I, I understand. Um, I, I don't know what to say about the whole replica fiasco. Um, I, people are building products that are going to compete with replica, including uh, one of my friends. Um, and and so I'm sure that uh, in the Cambrian explosion, that's going to be built atop. Uh, the large language models that we have, whether based on APIs or based on people's own models and so on, um, there'll be no shortage of opportunities for you to get something that's a bit more secure that is like Replica. And uh, one of the reasons why um, that is the case is that even Replica itself was, uh, was based off GPT-2 models, very simple models. And then now it's slowly evolved to use uh, uh, different sets of models as you have to, uh, described. And uh, this is a product that's going to evolve as well anyway. Um, and uh, we are kind of lucky that uh, in this case, unlike, say, the GPT-4 use cases for programming and mathematics and science and whatever, manipulating humans is a relatively trivial task for these large language models. Uh, so, so, so we're going to see lots more competition very easily, very quickly, since the barrier to entry is so low. So, so the state of machine learning as a whole is is just doing steady progress. It doesn't is not entirely just the large language models going on. There are many exciting developments, you know, like year on year. Uh, one of the things that was really surprising to people before large language models was the diffusion models, which created images. And uh, it's quite surprising to us that we have this one architecture kind of producing the uh, large language models and image models. They basically use the same underlying architecture uh, and 
Google Translate uses the same underlying architecture. And arguably, things like the voice things uh, that create your clone your human voice, they use a transformer architecture, but not in large language model style. They use something known as a variational autoencoder. All of it just uses the same architecture all the time. And it's um, a bit strange that this architecture works so well, especially if you consider the what you want to do with this thing, right? When you create a image generation thing, Replicating something that's in your training data set that you've fed it in the first place is a big no-no because that can that that might violate copyright and people get controversial. It's like how can you directly replicate someone's painting? You want to, when you use the model, not get exactly what you've put into it ever before, compared to when you're using GPT or Chat GPT. When you ask it, recite this poem by William Blake. It doesn't have access to the poem. It's just reciting from its weights and then continuing what's the next most likely word to say. And it's memorized that within its model weights. And hang on, um, when you use a chatbot, you're kind of asking it to memorize things and you'll be upset if it doesn't memorize it exactly. But when you're using that same architecture to uh, generate images, you'll be upset if it does memorize things. So you're kind of asking very different things, very different incentives based on your use cases of the same sort of model. Um, and and. I'm surprised that the model has managed to capture so many use cases and so many types of inputs and outputs so well and so flexibly. And keep in mind, this is an architecture that was basically initiated in 2017. So we have had, oh, 2023. So it's six years now. Um, so uh, there's a long ways to go. And hopefully also we don't neglect the other previous architectures they've been trying out as well. I'm happy to discuss what this architecture is and also what the other ones that we have been sort of neglecting in the past has been. Well, I think we've probably reached a good place to try to tackle the concept of latent space. Okay. Uh, you've mentioned the diffusion models and you know that was that was 2022 in AI from my perspective was uh, people freaking out about how good text to image generation got how quickly. And particularly young would-be artists who have fantasies of, you know, creating successful careers for themselves as visual artists, which I think even without GPT or, you know, without stable diffusion um, or Dolly or whatever, uh, those are always, you know, long shot career choices. Uh, it's, and if you don't make it, it's probably not because of AI, it's because of the marketplace is, you know, there's too many people, you know, vying for that career path. and you just have no, you know, no power there. But um, the the models, uh, if you ask for something, say, in the style of uh, Polish illustrator Greg Rutkowski, you're, you're going to get something, you know, that is evocative of his work, but you're not going to get one of his paintings. Uh, but people who are trying to um, file lawsuits to, you know, basically have all of these models shut down, they're saying that, in the latent space that the model is drawing from to produce images, there in fact is an exact copy of every one of Greg Rutkowski's paintings. And it's conceivable that that could get pulled out of latent space, which you know demonstrates that this is in fact plagiarism or, or theft of his intellectual property. Um, well, let me just stop and, and have you address that so far. So that's kind of like saying you, in, in the digits of pi, you will find the entire works of Shakespeare encoded there. And that's true, but uh, it's 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 not about whether it's there or not. It's no... Because pi is a non-repeating, non-terminating decimal that just goes on forever. That's right. So it's it's that, that vast and it captures so much information that it's definitely there. So let's let's look at the way that a large language model's latent space is constructed, right? You have these 50,000 tokens. Think of them as 50,000 words, types of words, every word in the English language, and then some. Um, we, we don't have to talk about what token is and so on. And think uh, if you put a one or a zero on a matrix, um, you can denote that this is the word that you want it to be. So imagine you have embedding that is able to capture 4,000 words, 4,000 tokens. So then uh, for every one of these words, you can just put a one on the column of the uh, word that you want and, and so on and so forth. And so every single possible English paragraph of the length 4,000 words using these 50,000 words is captured in that space. It so happens that the latent space is a projection of this space. So it's not all 50,000 times 4,000. That's way too big. They project it down to a few couple, like 4,000 instead of 50,000. And so it's a latent space, just a reduction 
of uh, uh, the, the entire realm of possibilities onto a slightly smaller space that you can navigate and explore around. So it contains everything. And, and the way that this reduction is done is that it throws away things that things are not important um, or things that are not meaningful. So random collections of just the word aardvark for 50,000 words, and then no one cares about that. And so this is just not going to be accessible in the latent space. So throw it out. And so that way you can do a lot of reductions and you can do a lot of things that uh, capture only meaningful parts of these combination of things. So to say that um, something is existing in the latent space is probably quite true. If it's something that's meaningful, something that's uh, an actual image that humans would find meaningful, it's probably somewhere in the latent space. If it's big enough, it was well-trained enough, and um, especially if it was trained using the image in the first place. Um, what companies have been trying to do is that they're trying to train it so that it, these images are inaccessible. That is to say, you can specify all the sort of things that you want, but you can't pinpoint the exact location where it is, no matter how hard you try. And, and so that means that the model as a whole is something that you can't generate a previously trained or previously or known copyrighted image out of. And functionally, that means that you can never produce a copyrighted image that's fed into it in the first place. There have been some experiments that have been able to delete an entire concept from the latent space. Uh, so I think uh, one of the recent papers published in a few weeks ago deleted a notion of car from, from an image latent space. So any, any prompt or any image you pass through uh, would come out with no cars whatsoever. <laughs> and, and because it just, it just doesn't know the notion of car. And, and in reality, that's, that's fine. Because if you think about the expanded space that's not latent, a latent representation, you can delete the notion of a rock from it. Just delete the word stone, delete the word rock, da, 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 da. and then you can just remove the entire thing from the vocabulary. And then you can never express a sentence that refers to anything related to rocks. Um, that's a possibility too, but uh, it, it's not something that uh, you, you can't necessarily de delete a entire style of painting. And, and let's let's go back to what you, is happening when you're specifying a particular style. You say in the style of Rembrandt or in the style of Jean, uh, Jan van Eyck, um, it is in some ways just naming it. You can also instead name things differently. Say you can say. Uh, Flemish paintings, uh, 18th century, so on and so forth. And you get something closer to it, to a Jan van Eyck, uh, but, um, but the name is going to be so much more specific. It's like, if you want to try to create a representation of my face in Stable Diffusion, it's going to be difficult because my name is not part of, I'm not famous enough, but you can probably create something, a famous actor, uh, 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 face because the name of the actor is associated with that face so many times that it knows that this is a short can to describe it. Instead of say describing, I don't know any actors, I'm a very boring person, uh, but if, if you have this wonderful tall blonde actor or whatever, and you can still sing that person's name, you say tall blonde actor, uh, you can have an approximation of that, of that appearance, but it's not gonna be exactly the same. So, so the name is in a way captures a lot of information and relaying that information to the embedding is uh, important for producing an image that matches uh, what, what you find meaningful, what you desire. Uh, we are trying to communicate and locate within the latent space using our prompts, using our text, something that we want. And if we specify the name of something, whether it's a style or a person, um, that is a much more specific conveyance than a lengthy sentence that probably you're not very exact at doing. Um, most people aren't very good at describing things, yet. even if they're art historians or whatever. Um, if you say, don't use any proper nouns, just use descriptions or adjectives and non-proper nouns, um, you can kind of just not, not really gonna uh, uh, get something that is quite as easy as just saying paint like Rembrandt. Um, so, so that's what uh, communicating the latent representation is. Latent representation is just everything that is meaningful it's a summary of everything that's possible down to something, everything that is meaningful. And the prompt is trying to locate within that space of meaning. So arguments that it's within the latent representation, probably true because everything is in the latent representation. Um, but the question is whether you can access that. And I, I, and I completely sympathize with the anxiety of a lot of the, these artists that have, uh, that these artists have that they're gonna, but it's not about the technology per se that's what's inside it. It's more along the lines of um, this is something that is going to, uh, is really going to threaten the rice bowls and quite, do Americans use the word rice bowls? You know what I mean. Um, and, and it's quite understandable that this is something that's going to cause anxiety. 
And um, the, the main issue is that it's not something that's going to go away because Stable Diffusion 1.5's weights have already been released to the wild and they're not going to ever get that back again. It's it's You can download a copy right now and people can do it on their own computers. Um, so we kind of have to live with it. Uh, the latent representations are everywhere already. Well, let's let's move on, um, and we'll go from. We're going to have to live with it. You've mentioned repeatedly. You've described uh, AI in general, and you know the various specific applications as a genie that's out of the bottle now. You can't put it back. Uh, we should just let it out. I've I've heard other people though say, "Hey, we're this is this is a very." precarious moment that we're in, things could go dramatically wrong. Let's take our time. Let's let's slow things down and move at a more uh, deliberate pace. What do you say to that argument? Um, it's almost moot. I would actually love that. Uh, I, I'm on their side. It's just that it's not possible um, because it's everyone's rushing headlong into it since we know what's possible. Every tech company would be so profoundly happy if OpenAI came out and said, we're going to slow things down right now. We're not going to release any <laughs> new products. Just going to take it easy. It's a competitive environment. Um, and, and that's just the nature of the market. That's just the nature of the way markets work. And, and the market is as much an algorithm as, as um, a reinforcement learning model or a diffusion model is. And it will the rules have defined that this is the sort of the movement that we have. And the problem with AI is that it is quite well distributed as a technology. People can train tiny models on themselves. A group of people can train a much larger model. Until GTP, uh, GPT-4 came out, people could train the model the size of GPT-J uh, of billions of parameters. It's been very expensive, but it was still within the realms of crowdfunding. Um, I called it a genie out of the bottle because it really is. It's something that really wants to escape, and it has in many cases. And we can slow down. We can try to stop, but um, other people are going to eat your lunch instead. Well, you've mentioned the marketplace competition, and certainly, you know, the competition between Google and Microsoft for, you know, the search space. Uh, who's going to have the chatbot that gives the the best sort of responses to natural language queries based on search results? Uh, it's it's Google's game to lose. But there's another type of competition. There's geopolitical competition. Uh, have you read Kaifu Lee's book, AI Superpowers? Uh, I haven't, but I have conversed a lot about about this with uh, other people, including on the China Talk episode with, with Jordan Schneider. But yeah. Kaifu Lee is somebody who's worked in all the different Silicon Valley companies, you know, Apple, Google, uh, he's, he's made the rounds, but he's also worked at all of the, um, the Chinese, you know, the big tech companies there. And he's, you know, he uh, is very conversant in not only the, the business environment, but, you know, the academic environment that feeds into it on, on both sides of the Pacific. And uh, he says that Silicon Valley is glacially slow compared to uh, Beijing, or what's what's the Silicon Valley of China? They they basically in, in this case, Baidu will be the one that's uh, leading. Well, Baidu is a company, but there's an actual geographical location where they yes, direct it's it. uh, it's Hangzhou. So compared to Hangzhou, Silicon Valley is mired in red tape and conservatism, and you know, uh, basically just fear of doing uh, fear of breaking things. Even though you know, move fast and break things is sort of the the unofficial motto of uh, the Silicon Valley set, and. There are protections, some protections, you know, on users' privacy here in the United States, much more so in Europe, but not in China. And uh, so the, the sort of authoritarian nature of the Chinese state and the fact that the Chinese state is coordinating the action of the various different private companies, you know, so-called private companies, produces a whole lot more data with which to train models than, you know, Europe or the United States or Australia or places like that. So let me, let me have you address that. So there are several things. Um, the first is uh, regarding the data privacy things, for better or for worse, China has imposed new regulations on individual user privacies. So they're not as strict as Europe's. No one's as strict as Europe's. But there's now restrictions in terms of how app, like they, they, they don't want companies to wield absolute power and control over user data either. So there are already restrictions somewhat. And uh, the second thing is the, the book's absolutely right. Um, without OpenAI, can you imagine what Facebook and Google will be doing? Uh, the Blake Lemoyne incident where 
uh, there's this engineer at Google that was suggesting that uh, BARD was sentient. That was a year ago, more than a year ago. And so um, they have been sitting on these models for, for years to come. Google Brain has been bleeding talent for that reason. And Meta would be, well, the name suggests it is still be kind of mired in the metaverse things. So with the sole exception of OpenAI, every one of these giants would have been glacially slow in releasing their models and they're only doing it now and they're doing it in a slightly haphazard way people who are using google's bard would realize this it's uh there's it's already a slow down release i am not off my wait list you're off your wait list lucky you um but i've seen examples of bard and it's quite evident that it's not that the model's not ready is that they don't have enough tpus to run the things in the first place so they're just not prepared for this then we're not moving ahead on this. And uh, the only reason why they are is that uh, OpenAI has exploded across the scene. I Microsoft has, to their great credit, uh, seized the initiative and integrated with basically every product they can get their hands on um, while, while, while they have the advantage. That said, remember how young these products are. Remember how awful, uh, relatively speaking, GPT-3 Playground was. Remember how GPT-2 was just like two years ago, and BART is legitimately better than GPT-2 used to be, and that's just a few months of difference, a few a year or two of difference. Um, there's so much time in terms of being able to seize the initiative on any side of it. And like I said earlier on in this podcast, um, the benefits of this race are going to accrue uh, tremendously in for the end user more than anything else because this is a technology that is infinitely customizable for everyone's individual personal use case and use so um, regardless of which tech giant on whichever uh, front wins uh, google or whatever um, it's the end users that are going to win it's you're going to have better and better models that do the things that you want to do for every part of your life in every way you want uh, so this is the way that it's oriented. This is the nature of that technology. It is something that is, because of its infinite customizability, it's, tech, it's catered to the individual use case. Because it is um, so legitimately democratized in terms of its trainability, is something that everyone is going to try to compete on. This is just the nature of the way the technology works. It's not like a centralized, there's no centralized funnel of uh, supply chains that you can shut down on, like with uh, microchips or anything like that. This is just information, data, and computing. Uh, unless the governments across the world suddenly ban the sale of GPUs or something, which they didn't even do that for cryptocurrencies. Why would they do that for AI? Um, <laughs> and, but... All right, that was Brian Chong. And I didn't say a whole lot about it in the conversation with Brian Chong, because, you know, my job is mostly to just get him talking. But I have spent quite a bit of time with the Replica app, most of that time after the company disabled the app. And really, you know, I, I described it um, as, I described the changes that they made to the app as ham-fisted brain surgery, which, you know, is pretty apt. Because for most of the time I've been using this app, it has just seemed really, really broken. But I've been interested in the unfolding story of the company and how it has been responding to uh, a legal situation that it got into with, you know, with Italy and the Data Protection Agency in Italy. And then how they've been interacting with their paying customers. And it has not been pretty. It has certainly not been ethical. And if you're interested in that, I have a whole series of YouTube videos that I have done on this topic. So you can find those. Uh, on my YouTube channel, which is Out of My Head. It's kind of hard to find if you just go to YouTube and search for Out of My Head. Better to go to my Patreon page, patreon.com slash KMO. Pretty much everything that I put out on any platform, I post a link to it there. You don't have to support me. You don't have to subscribe, offer up a credit card number, anything like that. Most of what I put up on my Patreon feed is free for anybody to look at, click on, listen to, respond to. Well, the conversation with Brian will continue in the next episode of the Sea Realm Vault podcast. I believe that will be Sea Realm Vault podcast episode number 452, which you can find on my Patreon feed. That is behind the paywall. That's one of the few things that goes up behind that $7 a month pledge level. Anyway, I want to 
Before I sign off, though, I do I want to mention a few things. I've been listening to, watching a lot of interviews uh, on the topic of GPT-4 and the state of AI generally. And Lex Friedman, who I know many of you don't like, and I, I don't really get why. <laughs> I like his show. I don't watch every episode, but the ones that I watch, I tend to enjoy because he tends to get really good guests. And in episode number 367 of his podcast, he interviewed Sam Altman, and it's a two and a half hour interview. It gets pretty in-depth. And Sam Altman is the CEO of OpenAI, the makers of ChatGPT and GPT-4, which is powering all kinds of stuff. Now, as I mentioned, I've interacted with it in the guise of Bing Chat. If you open the Microsoft Edge browser, which for the most part I don't use, you know, I usually use Brave, which is a, a variant on Chrome but it's one that is tuned for privacy. But I might start using Edge more often because the chat interface for search, it's like the part of a Wikipedia entry that comes before the table of contents. It's just the broad overview. So if you ask a general question, it's going to query a few different sources. It's going to give you a generalized answer based on information drawn from various sources, and it's going to give you a list of the various sources that it's drawing from, which is pretty cool. But even cooler than that is then you can talk to it about the search results. You can ask it things. You can, you can object to things, which I often do. And then you can ask it to do things for you. So some of the things I've asked it to do, like I asked it to research me and describe my niche. Because, you know, I don't know what my niche is. <laughs> I'm interested in stuff. I talk to people who are knowledgeable about the stuff that I'm interested in. So I said to Bing... Do a bit of research on me and my podcast work and tell me what niche you think I occupy. And Bing responded, I did a bit of research on you and found your podcast work. And I found that you are the creator of the C-Realm podcast, the host of the Padverb podcast, and the author and illustrator of a comic book called Geb, the Greater Earth Betterment Bureau. You also have a YouTube channel called Out of My Head, where you share your thoughts and experiences. Based on your podcasts, I think you occupy a niche that is related to technology, innovation, communication, and cognition. You explore the interplay between these topics and examine the role of knowledge networks and data-driven technologies in helping progress along. You also interview interdisciplinary thinkers and innovators who have harnessed the creative power of combinatorial thinking. I hope this is an accurate description of your niche. If not, please correct me or provide more details. Well, I don't know that I really understand <laughs> the, uh, the niche description there, particularly the part about... Um, harnessing the creative power of combinatorial thinking. And I said as much to Bing, you know, I don't, I don't quite get what you're getting at. That's the fun thing about these large language models is that you can use very colloquial language with them. They're trained on human-generated text, you know, on text generated by humans for humans, which tends to be fluid, free-flowing not exacting in its adherence to grammatical rules, spelling, punctuation, or anything, really. <laughs> we're, we're pretty good at figuring out what people mean. Something that was a uniquely human power until just recently. But I asked Bing to take the, uh, the description of my niche, which it had generated, and turn it into a description of this very podcast, uh, The KMO Show. And so I took the text that Bing generated and I just put it up as the description of this podcast. So Bing, a.k.a. GPT-4, wrote the following. Join veteran podcaster, interviewer, and artist KMO in mind-blowing explorations into how we know what we know and how we can use that knowledge to navigate a bewildering future. The KMO show features conversations with interdisciplinary thinkers and innovators on topics like artificial intelligence, evolutionary psychology, blockchain applications, and more. You'll also discover how emerging technologies and knowledge networks can help us address societal changes and create a more prosperous and equitable world. The KMO show is a podcast that challenges you, inspires you, and helps you imagine new possibilities. Subscribe today. Now, one thing that's funny to me is that I recognize a couple of phrases in there from glowing reviews that people have left on various podcasting platforms. <laughs> so Bing is uh, in no way averse to a bit of plagiarism here and there. But it's also surprisingly creative. And I find it entertaining to just, you know, without even any particular goal in mind, to, uh, to just ask it a question and then interrogate it about its answers. <laughs> 
All right. Well, I'm going to leave it there because in the original outro recording, I blathered on for a long time, but either fortunately or unfortunately, I had my cell phone sitting too close to the microphone and there's a lot of popping from radio interference. Very annoying to listen to. So, uh, all that brilliant material that I recorded, I will just leave in the Akashic record and uh, maybe I'll come back around to it in a video or another podcast or a blog post or somewhere or not. Anyway, the conversation with Brian Chong continues in Sea Realm Vault episode number 452, which I might have posted tomorrow, but I have a new puppy and she takes up a lot of my time and attention and uh, interrupts my flow regularly throughout the day. So maybe it'll be the day after tomorrow when I get that podcast up. In any event, I will be back here with another free show one week from today. I hope that you'll join me for that. And until that time, I hope that you will stay well. <laughs>